Yo, yo, welcome to uh, Politics is Usual. You know, I need to hit up Hov and hopefully he'll let me, uh, hopefully he'll let me have some rights to the song to at least play it for a few seconds. Anyway, um, for our first episode, I cannot think of a better individual uh, who is just so heartwarming and so uh, just genuine and intelligent and authentic while equally being an A.O. Gotta love it all. Um, Shelly Shell, also known as Shelly Jackson, hailing from South Phoenix, right? Shelly, how are you today? How's your life? <laughs> That's a hard question. Um, <laughs> quarantine life got me going crazy, but you know what? We gonna keep on checking, so. Amen, amen. Tell us a little bit about quarantine life in, in, in regards to organizing. I know we'll get into your background and, you know, here's some of your insight about a lot of the issues that are you know, front facing both nationally and locally momentarily. But for somebody like yourself who has so much experience, you know, organizing, maybe not so much in the political sphere, which we'll talk about. Well, you have experience. Maybe you don't uh, like it, but we'll get there uh, a little bit later. But as far as your organizing efforts, you know, how how, is, how have those changed, you know, since uh, since COVID? Um, I, I'm a, the type of person that likes to do things in person. I like seeing people. I like being in community with people. Um, and I think pre-COVID, like that's what a lot of organizing looked like for me, right? Like being able to be at events, being able to facilitate in person, um, being able to just join strategy sessions uh, mm -hmm. with amazing folks in the same area. But I think now, I mean, as you know, everything's on Zoom. So I like live on Zoom. <laughs> um, I, I literally live on Zoom. Uh, so that's lame as hell. Um, but as a, a trainer, as a facilitator, I've also been facilitating a lot of conversations, a lot of trainings on Zoom as well. Um, and so nonetheless, like the work continues. It just looks really different right now. Hey, the marathon continues. I ain't never going to stop. Um, so before we dive into anything else, Shelly, just um, tell us a little bit about yourself, some of your current work, what projects you're undertaking. I know you got like eight jobs. So if you're not officially a Jamaican, you should be an honorary one. Um, but what's 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 the what's the organizing the work life plate look like right now for uh, for Shelly Jackson? Okay, right now in this moment, it is August twenty second. So everything I say about right now may change. <laughs> It'll change by the time this is up, but it's fine. <laughs> um, but right now, um, a lot of my time is being taken up at um, the organization I work for, Instituto. Um, I just started here. When June, July? What's time? I don't know. Yeah, 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 we'll say June. Yeah, I like June. Um, yeah. So I started working here in June. Um, I'm the deputy director of training and engagement. Um, and the work we do at Instituto is pretty dope. Um, I like to think of it as the support organization for all of the progressive infrastructure here in Arizona. So I have the opportunity to work with um, phenomenal organizers and field directors and folks doing amazing work all across the state. And my main job is to support them. Um, if they need training, if they need tools, if they need resources, Instituto is there to fill in all of those gaps, whatever that may look like. And so um, that's what that looks like for most of the time <laughs> um, when I think about organizing. I'm also um, doing some organizing work with Rising Youth Theater. They are um, a local theater company that um, definitely focuses on uh, social justice issues. And I've been a teaching artist with them before. So in the past, I've been able to um, teach at many different schools in the Valley, um, uh, teaching them dance or theater through that company. But right now we're working on a program called Creative Interventions. Last, uh, last semester that looked like 
um, teachers from all across the valley coming together to say, how do I have a social justice lens in the classroom, right? So how do I stop that school to prison pipeline? How do I recognize my own bias in real time um, and make sure that my students also feel like this is a place for them and that they are also expertise <laughs> at being students and their lived experiences. But this time around, Creative Interventions is taking a youth route. And so right now we have a cohort of young people from all across the state um, that is working to organize and make sure that their voices are heard and are at the forefront as like all these schools across the nation are starting to talk about COVID reopening. Um, we see that teachers' voices are being uplifted, politicians' voices are being uplifted, but nobody's hmm. talking to the students. Yeah. The students would be mainly affected. And so this program right now is organizing those students. Um, that's project number two. <laughs> oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. Okay, okay. Um, project number three is working with an organization called Twine, um, and that specific project is called Healing Black Phoenix, and we're working hey. on um, providing yoga, Reiki, and life coaching sessions to free, uh, completely free to Black folks in Phoenix, um, so oh, that they can have the resources that they need. I'm working on a bunch more, but I'm just going to highlight those three as like yeah. right now on, on what's happening. Um, so good stuff, good stuff all around. Yeah, that's what's up, Superwoman. Um, that actually might be the title of this, actually. Superwoman Lives in South Phoenix. I think it's all coming together in my head. Um, what inspired you to get involved in, in organizing at this capacity, right? Like, I think a lot of people, you know, might knock a door every four years or, you know, hand out meals at the, you know, homeless shelter, you know, every two years. But for somebody who's as actively involved as you are, you know, what, what thing or things inspired you to, to, to really dig into this work? Yeah, um, I love telling people how I was a, a dance major <laughs> for three and a half years until I changed my major to community advocacy and social policy. Yeah, I've never heard this story. Uh. <laughs> and my mom has always been like, every time she even thinks about that, she's like, what the fuck was wrong with you? Like, well, <laughs> um, but I, I, as you know, like I grew up in South Phoenix. Um, South Phoenix has always been a community that has been overlooked. Um, even when we think about the makeup of South Phoenix, um, it has also been a very segregated neighborhood um, in the sense of like South Phoenix from the rest of Phoenix and what that looks like. And um, I didn't know that like I grew up in a relatively poor neighborhood, right? Like I didn't know that I grew up with the lack of resources because if everybody has a lack of resources then it's just like, it's just life. We're just like, we're just living. Um, it wasn't until when I got to Tempe High School, which was uh, the school outside of my district, um, that my mom sent me to because she thought that that was going to be a better opportunity for me that I realized that, oh, snaps, like, you know, they have teachers that stay more than a month here, you know, like they have some things put together, like maybe, <laughs> maybe that was a problem. Yeah. Um, maybe what we went through as kids, um, was not was not right and was not beneficial for our, our future. Um, I also realized that a lot of the students like me who end up going to that school, we we thought we were the shit because we were in honors classes <laughs> in our junior high, and then we got to the high school and was like, oh, y'all must have been learning something different, right? Because um, maybe they weren't teaching us at grade level, whatever the case may be, but the quality of education wasn't there. And so I think once I got into high school, that like kind of switch turned on on like, okay. 20 minutes away, this is different, and people live different, and, and people um, have different access. And I think that that analysis or that awakening continued all the way up into college. 
um, and even like inspired me to change my major from dance to community advocacy and social policy. And so I think for me, when I think about even how I still live in South Phoenix and the injustices that we see every day, the police violence that we see, it has really been me saying, okay, how can I, oh, that cliche, right? <laughs> of like, how do I actually be the change that I want to see? But like right. actually action um, and bring people along with me, right? So it's not that like I go somewhere and then come back and everything's fixed and we do all this. Like, why can't we make change and bring people along um, at the same time, right? It doesn't yeah. have to be that we reach a certain destination. And then we say, I'm going to do this for my community. It's let's bring people along every step of the way, because that's actually how um, we get folks involved in the movement, right? Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's a little bit about why I got involved. Yeah, no, that's what's up. I mean, to anybody who doesn't know, um, you know, Shelly is a massive uh you know, game changer, very much so involved. I mean, I, I, I think I, we all know a lot of people who, you know, are like social media activists and warriors and put a lot of stuff behind a keyboard. And like, granted, you know, I used to sort of call folks out on that a lot. And I think what I've learned also is like, there is an element of privilege associated with being, or even having the ability to be as involved in organizing electoral politics, whatever it might be that folks like you and I are. So I kind of try to, you know, check my own privilege and sort of arrogance at the same time uh, within that regard. But as it like concerns, you know, black women and organizing, because I don't think anybody can uh, sort of, no one can discount or discredit the contributions that black women have made to any and all sort of American movements, especially in contemporary times. But I think the narrative or what we see sort of publicized within organizing continues to sort of devalue the contributions of black women. And just in your experience, somebody, you know, of your stature who's as involved as you are, both, you know, locally, statewide and, and, and nationally, why is that? And, and what are some of the things we can do to, to counteract that? That's a, a it's loaded. Hard question. We got time. <laughs> oh man. Um I think that Black women, as you have already said, right, has always been pushed aside, um, has always been the one to not receive any grace, right? So Black women have to be the right the first time. Um, and if you don't, if you don't, I don't even know what to say after that, right? Because mm. most of the time, we don't get second chances. Um, most of the time, no one really allows us that grace. Um, and I'll say like, speaking from my own experience, I will say, right, like no group is a monolith. Um, black women are not a monolith and we all have our own different opinions. But um, as someone who is a black woman uh, who has grown up in South Phoenix, Arizona, right, also in a state that only has about six to 7% black population already. Um, and as someone who's young, right, like I'm 24, um, <laughs> I'm 24 years old. And I think that when I look back on um, my entry to organizing or my entry into this work or being in the spaces that I have been in, um, I have recognized that um, it is easier for folks to even maybe unintentionally, right, say like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 we hear you and like keep going yeah. <laughs> or um, to act like you're just like not in the room. And I'll say like for me, that may look different again where I am compared to like if I was in Georgia right or if I was in California and I say this because here in Arizona a lot of the organizing is centered around non-black Latinx folks mm. right 
And so aside from like being a black woman and being young, like I'm already saying that like, hey, black voices also deserve <laughs> to be yeah. at the table or black voices um, or black, our black communities here in Arizona also deserve to be served, which means that we should also have access to resources, et cetera, right? And so I think like specifically here in Arizona, it may look different um, for black women than it may in other places across the state. And I think that we also have to make sure we tackle things in that lens. Yes, um, it, it is hard and, and yes, um, it, it has been super easy uh, for the collective voice of politics or social justice work to say like, mm -hmm, yeah, they're doing it and they can <laughs> behind the yeah. scenes. But it, it is also different depending on what state you're in or what city that you're organizing in as well. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a good point. I noticed that in my time out in Arizona. I guess we should qualify the fact that that we've we've worked with one another um, at this organization um, that is directly related to the Democratic Party. So we'll leave that at that. Um, a job I actually enjoy in retrospect, um, especially the well, no, I well, let me qualify that. I love that when everybody was together, like when we were traveling, doing boot camps, you know trainings all that stuff it was fantastic so i guess i don't know that was that was uh, that was the gist of that to your point i noticed you mentioned something as far as like black women oftentimes not like receiving uh, a lot of the grace that other folks get especially privileged white men um and and we'll talk a little bit more about you know how you feel about electoral politics after this but do you think uh and this is a loaded question it's kind of meant to be i like asking loaded questions um was joe biden picking kamala harris uh, to be vice, to be his vice presidential uh, running mate, an example of some level of grace at the electoral level. Was it pandering? Was it simply a political move? You know, what what's your insights as far as uh, on hopefully our next you know vice president of the United States? Yeah. Um, this yeah, very loaded. <laughs> Very loaded. Um, I think that it's important that we recognize like the time that we're in, right? Um, because we're in this moment in time where Trump is in office um, and has been in office for four years and we have seen the direct impact of him being in office um, for that, that long, right? I think also this is happening at a unique time of the Black Lives Matter, like uprisings. Um, and we have to make sure that we're, we're also keeping in mind like what um, that like abolitionist movement has contributed into also like us having a, a vice president uh, that is a black woman. Um, so I think that there, there's all that to consider, right? It's like, we're in this like one of the most important elections <laughs> of our freaking lifetime with yeah. a, whole bunch of, a whole bunch of stuff at stake, right? We're also at the time, at a time um, of the uprisings of the Black Lives Matter movement, and we're in the middle of a, a pandemic. Like, what? Just keep adding it on. Like, <laughs> like it never what? ends. <laughs> what is happening? What is happening? Um, and when I think about Kamala Harris um, and her being the, the vice president pick, I think about her time when she was running for president. Mm. And I think about how much grace she was not allowed when she was running for president and how that maybe even played into her, how far or how far she didn't get. Oh, for sure. Uh, right. And 
And I feel like everybody was giving her so much smoke <laughs> about things that she definitely deserved the smoke for, but that also took away time that people could have been grilling Bloomberg, right? And all these other candidates. Oh my that, gosh. <laughs> uh, that truly, truly didn't give a crap about black people. Right. right? right. Um, and so now that she is the VP pick, um, I think that I'm still seeing some of that smoke come up again, right? Like, yeah. oh, damn, like, this is who we got <laughs> out of all people. Like, this is who he picked, X, Y, and Z. But I, I will say that, like, some of that, some of the, the rhetoric that's centered around that conversation is honestly irrelevant, right? Like, some people mm. are saying, like, oh, she's just not black enough. Irrelevant. Man, I hate that. Black. That is so... She's black, she's black, she's black. Yeah. She's black, black, black. And the fact that <laughs> she went to Howard, the I'm... fact that aka it's like she meets all your little check boxes bro if she got any more black then people would be like she's too black so (laughs) can't win you can't win (laughs) like you literally can't win um and i i do understand that because of the the time that we're living in right like a lot of people are seeing kamala as a slap in the face because of her uh prosecutor background or whatever that may look like right um her background in law and because of her background with affiliation with police, right? And so in the the same time of the uprising, I think a lot of people are like, wow, like this is who we picked in the time where everybody's saying defund the police at a time where everybody's saying X, Y, and Z, you know, you picked the black woman that has had um, experience in, in that. But I will say that when Kamala made her first speech after she got nominated or after she was the VP pick, like my mom, was standing in our living room and like she was almost crying, right? Yeah. Like she was so happy. <laughs> she was so happy and it reminded me of the time when when my grandma was still alive and Obama, um, became, the, Obama became the president. Mm-hmm. My grandma was crying, right? And um, going back to like black women are not a monolith, right? Like no matter who that black woman was going to be, she was going to get smoke. Yeah. And nobody was going to give her grace anyway, right? So, mm-hmm. like, even if even if they picked someone who was on the other side of the aisle, people would have still been pissed. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that the times that we're in, some people are calling this the most progressive ticket ever. And is it progressive? No. But yeah. is it progressive compared to the times? Yes. <laughs> I mean, historically, it is. Right, right, yeah. right. And I think, like, all of that has to be put into context. And I gave you this long-winded answer, Fred, because I'm tired of folks. I'm tired of people who say that it's black or white mm. because none of these issues are black and white. Amen. Every All of this is nuanced, it's complex, and it has history behind it. And like all of that plays into what we're seeing go down today. Um, that's me. I feel you. Yeah. I mean, you put it way better than I could. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to rehash or, or even remotely mansplain. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, that's been my problem. And I always, I'll be coming at people's neck probably a little too hard. So I'm, I'm trying to learn how to, how to back off a little bit. And like, look, you know, Joe Biden wasn't even my preferred candidate for president. I think people thought he was, cause I was like, Joe Biden's going to win. And I was just like, no, like Joe Biden wasn't my preference. I just know politics and I know who ends up winning the democratic nomination is a person that black people want. That's not nuance. And the fact that so many quote unquote political operatives were surprised by him winning shows how many of two's people we have working in democratic politics in general. That's a different conversation. But I think like the two things I've seen mostly is as you mentioned, people questioning their blackness, which is just annoying, but then just calling her a cop 
because she used to be a prosecutor, uh, which is equally annoying um, for a variety of reasons because it ignores all the other things that she put in place as both AG and as a senator to help you know folks not only in her native Bay Area but also across the state in general. Um, one, but as you mentioned, sort of the the defund the police. I think the the term has been around for not a while, but for stopping for a second. Yeah. Before we even get to that, one more thing on Kamala, where folks aren't looking at the nuance, right? Because for me, when I think of Kamala, I think of like a lot of the growth she has had mm. from right, like being attorney general and then being a, a U.S. senator. And yeah. I think we have seen, for me, I have seen her move on different issues and the way yeah. that she voted or the way she has stood up for certain things. And I think that's important to also know. Mm. And when I think of someone who I want running this country, yes. I'm, I'm hoping that they're someone we can move. Yes. You know, someone who we can push, someone who we can actually get in the room and like have a productive conversation that isn't about just like here for a photo op, someone who we can move on these issues. And I think that Kamala has showed in her career that even though there have been times I'm like, oh, that was BS. Like over the years, we have seen her move on issues and that's powerful. Yeah. And nobody's stagnant. So. Yeah. Well, I think is important. And it's one of the things we've like, the current president has no movement whatsoever. He's a stubborn narcissist who probably has early onset Alzheimer's. Um, I've, I've never understood how or why in politics it's always been like people love labeling people who are running for office as like flip floppers. And it's just like, I personally want somebody who changes their positions over time. Like Obama, when he came into office, wouldn't define marriage as anything other than between a man and a woman. Four years later, he was, he was very strongly advocating for that definition to change, rightfully so. So I think that's one big thing in that, you know, I, my challenge is that challenge. My, the thing I struggle with the most is it seems and I'm not going to blanket. I'm pretty sure it's, it's white people and Latinx people too. I just interface mostly with black people. So I want to preface that with this. I, I do think there's somewhat of like an expectation, and this might be more of a Democratic Party thing than a black people thing, for people running for office to be perfect. Um, mm -hmm. And in a way that said expectation is not put on anybody else. Like we're going to talk about Beyonce momentarily um, and, and Jay-Z momentarily, but like there are definitely some problematic things there as well, which we'll discuss, mostly just their incessant belief in capitalism and just hoarding wealth. Um, and I think we place, we place unrealistic, unrealistic expectations on candidates for office, number one. Number two, we place, place absurdly unrealistic expectations on black candidates running mm -hmm. for office in ways I think we don't do obviously for white people, but also for folks of other ethnicities and races as well. Um, and, and, and that's one of the things I'd like to see. And I think a part of it is just honestly the harshness of, of black folks in general. Um, I do want to sort of circle back because you brought something up as far as Kamala really growing uh, over the years, which is what every human being should be doing from her positions. Uh, one of the things I continue to see is people, you know, basically say, oh, we got a cop as vice president and somebody who wrote the crime bill um as 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 president um i'll i will gladly rant on this um because i think that's one of the most obtuse takes uh in a minute uh but what's your what's what is your take your view your opinion on joe biden and what he might bring uh to the white house um i definitely feel like the crime bill for me when it comes to the crime bill and joe biden i i have personally like wanted 
him to acknowledge it more head on. Uh, and I think for and I think a lot of people also feel like that. I don't think anybody's like, oh, like he just wrote this and that's like the problem. I think that the problem is that to me it looks like he's always been running from it. Yeah. Uh, and I and that's not something that excites me. Yeah. Uh, I do think that um, Joe Biden was not my first pick or second or third or fourth <laughs> or fifth. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about sure. sixth? Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I will say that um, I believe that when we elect a president, we also elect their team. Mm. And I do believe that Joe Biden is competent enough to surround himself with people who have values that are rooted in justice yeah. um, and integrity that can move him yeah. along with community uh, accountability and pressure. And so again, definitely not excited, <laughs> but I'm gonna do what I gotta do, right? Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> But I do think that again, like we we elect his team, and I think that he has he is someone that I can depend on having people around him that is going to actually have expertise um, and integrity and, and justice around them. So yeah. So in a nutshell, even if you don't like him, yeah, I vote for Joe Biden because he's a thousand times better than Donald Trump. Don't don't. This is not the year for your little cute protest vote. All right, maybe in four years. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm just saying. I get it. Some people want a third party option. So, you know, just aren't happy about it. They're moderates, quote unquote, and all this other stuff. And like, look, I get it. But I think <sighs> this is such a unique election in that we have a fascist in the White House. Um, <clears throat> but then there are other sort of practical implications, most notably the courts, most notably law enforcement, so on and so forth. And it's like, what I can't seem to reconcile is all the things we're marching and advocating for. Those become immensely more difficult for the next generation, not just for four years, but for the next generation. When you talk about funding, continued training and development of police, the way they're currently getting it now. When you talk about courts, both federal, but also circuit courts, so on and so forth. Like black liberation becomes that much more difficult with four more years of this buffoon. Um, so that's why I'm like, look, I get it. Biden wasn't my first choice either, but let's not let a fascist who clearly is racist and doesn't care about black, Latinx, indigenous or any other people that aren't white, get another four years. That said, um, the organization that we had the chance and the pleasure of working at was more of an electoral politics one. Um, you lasted longer than I did, so congratulations. Um, you were there before me. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I actually loved it. I would have stayed. I enjoyed it, but then COVID happened, and it was just like, mm, I'm not sure I want to sit in front of Zoom 12 hours a day. Uh, honestly, I can't wait to delete this app from my computer. Lord, help fix COVID. But anyway, um, somebody like yourself got experience in electoral politics and social justice, you're creative, which I, all those spaces I think are equally relevant to black liberation, right? Electoral politics is a part of it. I think we've put, we've made it too much or more than it is, but it's a part of it. Whereas art's a part of it, whereas education's a part of it, whereas social justice is a part of it. And you have a lens and experience in all those areas when it comes to black liberation um, and, and how we sort of bring all those worlds together to get to a common goal. Um, what, what do you think is, is the, the path of least resistance that has the largest outcome as well? 
That's hard. <laughs> Frederick, all these, uh, <laughs> all these loaded, loaded questions. I mean, we got a scholar and a creative one here, you know, we got we got a dish on the goods while we got you. Oh man. Um, I honestly think that all of the above is equally important because, um, people are going to find their niche and what makes sense and what feels good to them. Mm. Right. Um, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen, um, the I am not your Negro? I have not. It's on Netflix. I've been meaning to watch that for like two years now. Um, don't hate me. Uh, <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to catch up on it. Don't stone me. Uh, I'm still black. Please don't call me a cop. <laughs> You're so stupid. Um, I honestly just watched it like a couple weeks ago, but it was, um, really insightful because James Baldwin basically, um, talks about how talks about his like specific role in the movement during that time right and so it it talks about his relationship between um medgar evers um who was with the naacp martin luther king who we all know right who was leading the um but mlk said (laughs) non-violence movement but also uh malcolm x right and these are all very different leaders um and it was interesting for me because I love how he talked about how he couldn't really get on board fully with any of the three, but he knew that he had a specific role in the movement to document, mm. to amplify. And I think that's important because yeah. for some people, they will not be protesting. For some people, honestly, they also won't be voting, right? But, but there is a, a niche for everyone. There's a place for everyone. And I think the more we actually tap into that, the better we all are. Because this idea that... I'm doing something and you just have to hop on board because I'm doing it doesn't feel right. Yeah. When I look at myself and the the lens that I have and the different ways that I'm involved in the movement, that's also because like I'm a Gemini and I'm all over the place and like <laughs> all of those niches make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel like I best support the movement, right? It's like when I'm able to dabble and move depending on the the time we're in or the urgency that we're in for a specific action and i think like that makes sense for me but for teachers mm. their protests may be in the classroom that's real right um and that, and how they how they teach and how in the curriculum that the, it holds and the books that they bring in right that may be their part and i also think that we don't talk enough about going back to what you said at the very beginning the way that organizing has been inaccessible to people yeah there's a reason why we see mainly young people leading the movement because it's like they ain't got nothing to lose, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> they got no kids, they got, they got all this extra stuff, right? And a lot of people are just trying to survive, right? Yeah. A lot of people are just trying to make sure that they have food on the table for their kids, trying to make sure their kids have the supplies that they need. And for them, their protest may be raising um, anti racist kids. Mm. And I think that that's important. Um, and so for me, I'm more interested in not like which one is important, but like how do we all like recognize the role and responsibility that we have to pushing towards liberation? Yeah. And, like, saying like this is it and then acting on it consistently. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a good word. <clears throat> I'm not going to say nothing to, to, to even expand upon that. Uh, <laughs> so <clears throat> I think what we're seeing now is, is more of a, more of an influence, more of a push, um, more understanding around what it means to uh, defund the police. I think even that conversation encourages me because it's always been 
you know, well, we went from the 80s and 90s to uh, increase tough on crime, increased police presence. Uh, that's transformed a bit to the militarization of police with 9-11 and just the bevy of things they use that that tragedy to just uh, erode our, you know, amendments and uh, constitutional rights and just everything else. And now we're finally starting to see more of a shift towards not just police accountability and training, but also allocating more resources to um, things that inevitably, if you invest in them over time, will decrease crime and poverty and so on and so forth. And if you decrease those things, you obviously don't need as much police preaching to the choir. But a lot of people I've interacted with ask questions about <clears throat> what does it mean to defund the police? And the most common question, which is so annoying, the most common question people bring up or, you know, uh, counterpoint is, well, what are you going to do if somebody you know, breaks into your house in the middle of the night? And it's like, one, if there's a break in your house in the middle of the night, are the police going to get there in time to rescue you anyway? Uh, and then two, it's just I think Americans do have this little funny fascination, not funny, this fascination like home invasions in ways that just don't exist in other Western civilizations. That is a podcast in and of itself. But I do think a lot of people uh, struggle and don't have a full understanding of what it means to to defund the police and sort of outcomes that come with that, you know, in the short, intermediate and long term. Um, what does it mean to defund the police? Yeah. First, I will say that um, when I think about defunding the police, I think about being bold enough to dream of something different mm. and being bold enough right to like imagine that something different and new completely new is possible yeah and i want to emphasize that completely new because i think some people have this misconception that defund the police actually just means like oh, we just take a little bit of their money and put it here. But I want to be clear when I say that, like when organizers, and I'll say specifically black abolitionists, queer um, organizers are screaming defund the police, that is coming from an abolitionist mindset, abolitionists thinking of abolish. So that actually means abolish the police mm. in its entirety and start mm. Yeah. And I think that's important to be explicit and saying because then we get things circling the internet that's like defund the police doesn't mean get rid of the police it means and it's like a whole bunch like a long list of things it doesn't mean and i'm like y'all yeah. don't care anything huh yeah. like y'all yeah. <laughs> don't look into anything um but abolitionists um play a role in society that i think pushes us all forward in in different ways um and i think defund the police is scary for folks yeah it's scary for I'll be honest and say it's scary for me, right? Um, but that's the point, right? Mm. It's like that same cliche quote of like, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. Mm, yeah. Why is it that like our imaginations have been suppressed so much to say like this isn't possible? And so when we think about defund the police, that looks like a process of like. For example, here in Phoenix, um, we've been having our, our city council meetings on budgets and all these other different things, right? And um, organizers have been advocating like, okay, cool, let's cut this budget down. Let's start right now. <laughs> let's start now, start it right now. These these police uh, these police unions or uh, police departments that have uh, millions of dollars, right? Let's say that instead of getting two million in 2020, we're gonna cut it down to like 1.8 million. I'm just giving like, I'm just throwing around some numbers, right? 
And then let's say in 2019, that 1.8 million is like that 1.6 and continuously going down each year. And, and then people say, okay, well, where does the money go then? Well, that money goes towards um, social workers. That money goes towards people who can actually be highly trained <laughs> um, to actually handle the problems that our community is seeing. And I think, again, going back to our imagination and the role police play in our communities, when we think about police, right, if you're driving down the street and you have a broken taillight, what happens? I get pulled over. And then what happens? Um, uh, I, you, you went on mute. What'd you say? I said I'm asked to step out of the car. You're asked to step out of the car and then what? Uh, I'm going to be asked if I have any bobs or firearms or anything in the car. Okay, and then what? And then I'm probably going to be placed in handcuffs, even if I'm not under arrest, because they're trying to detain me. Okay, and then what? I might get shot. Okay, you might get shot. Yeah. Let's say you don't get shot, but what will you still walk away with, most likely? Uh, bad experience, fear, intimidation. And the ticket. Oh, yeah, I got to pay. Now you got to pay, right? So you have to pay, because this police officer who said that I'm here to protect and serve Pulled you over for having a broken tail light, traumatized you more for being black, <laughs> mm -hmm. and then says, "Here goes a ticket that you also have to pay." Does mm -hmm. that keep our community safe? Yes or no? No. It doesn't. So, what does it look like when actually we don't have police and we have, I don't know, community? What's the name? Let's just say community. Um, Cares. <laughs> cares okay community cares let's say a community care person sees that you have a broken tail light and they pull you over they say hey fred um i noticed you have a broken tail light do you let, let's get that fixed right now uh. cool fix the tail light oh you're on your way that's safety right because now um now you're able to drive and folks know the signals and everything that you're about to go that is anyway the point is is that yeah. that's what be safe that's what prevents harm right saying pulling people over for little things like that and then traumatizing them giving them a ticket doesn't keep our community safe uh -huh. so why are we so attached to this idea that police equal safety uh -huh. and again what has happened to us historically to also suppress our imaginations enough to say that we cannot dream further than what we see already yeah so I think that the folks who are screaming defund the police, who are being called radical and being called X, Y, Z, they play a, a specific role in making us dream bigger and in making us push towards that. And that does not mean that you take away all the money from the, the police at one time, but it does mean that we start to divest, right? We, we start to take that money in increments, and then we start to put it into the things that actually matter after school programs, making sure that kids um, actually have a place to go when their parents are working late, right? Harm reduction programs, all these other things that actually benefit our community. Yeah. That's good. America has lost its vision and its opportunity, its ability to really, to really imagine something beyond the fold. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things I saw on Twitter is somebody, it was a long thread, really informative one, um, <clears throat> that pretty much equated you know, the, the institution of police uh, with unfettered capitalism. 
And basically in that, if you really boil it down, police exist to help uphold white supremacy and unfettered capitalism. Um, and, and so we can talk about that in a variety of ways. We're gonna, uh, we got about five more minutes, but one of the things I wanna highlight is sort of have the conversation of capitalism within is the sense of black entrepreneurship, um, which I think is, uh, is idolized, is talked about a little bit too much. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, like it's cool and all, um, but one, I worked way too many hours. Two, I, I built a business that was incredibly uh, difficult and spent like three or four years depressed. There were just so many, there was better ways I could have done it. Um, recently, Jay-Z released a song with Pharrell. Uh, called, I don't know if it's called Entrepreneur or Black Man or something, um, but y'all would know what it is. A few weeks ago, Beyonce released a new video album called Black is King. What I found particularly, like what I took away from it, and I didn't watch it, um, so I, I should preface that for everybody. I haven't seen it yet. Um, my biggest takeaway was knowing that it was exclusively on Disney Plus, which has capitalistic roots in and of itself. Uh, and even though both Jay-Z and Beyonce are sort of, you know, continuously putting forth this, you know, belief of black ownership, so on and so forth. Um, is there space for black liberation and capitalism to exist? No. Why? <laughs> um capitalism says that we value property and things and money over people mm. and when i think about capitalism here in the united states that has a direct link to the oppression that we still see today um of people who look like us right yeah, yeah. Uh, this country was built on the blacks uh, the labor of, of black folks, right? Mm. Um, which has created um, that 400 year head start, right? Which has created um, or manifested this, this white supremacy culture. Um, and we see that in many different ways. We see it in mass incarceration. Um, we see it in the ways that black people try to like sometimes keep up, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I think about capitalism and liberation, liberation says that I'm free. And mm. capitalism only says that I'm free if I have a certain amount of money. Mm. Or if I have a certain, like, capitalism says I'm only worthy if, yeah. right? If I have this asset or if I have that asset or if I make this amount of money. And I am trying to imagine and be in a world where, like, you are free because you're human, yeah. right? Like, you are you don't have to have like this fancy degree you don't it's the same when we see that um when, when black folks get killed they always try to like wow he was from harvard they killed him and yeah like, yeah let's not do that yeah. <laughs> let's not do that because um we should be outraged either way yeah. it doesn't matter who they are right um but but i think for me capitalism continues to say that it's okay to put property and things over people. And that means that that does not equal liberation. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I appreciate, uh, appreciate your insight there. I'm not going to offer, uh, any, any rebuttal there. I should, I will note that Shelly and I actually had this conversation a few months ago in person. Um, and in retrospect, I couldn't admit it at the time cause I'm like just mad prideful. Um, but I got clocked in the argument. My argument was bad. I didn't have no solid facts or data points to come back with. I just kept going in it because I didn't want to admit defeat. Yeah, that's just how I am. I'll acknowledge it. Uh, but all I have to say, I've been moved a little bit from where I was even six or seven months ago um, after engaging in that conversation. So shout out to shout out to growth. I'm gonna pat myself on the back. 
Um, I'm proud of you. <laughs> you know, I'm coming around. You know what I'm saying? I used to actually, I was a Republican a few years ago. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, well, you know, things, things change. We grow. Um, rapid fire stuff to close this out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, favorite historical figure. Bro, pick, you can't do that. Gotta pick one. Gotta pick one. One. Gave you both sides in this thing. Okay, who's yours first? Zora Neale Hurston. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's such a good one. Oh, shit, dude. Um, okay, I'll say at, the, at this moment. It may change tomorrow. Yeah, right, yeah. Now, right now, it's Toni Morrison. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Favorite book? Oh, shit. Um, I'll go okay. first. Okay, go. Their eyes were watching God. <laughs> I'm just a huge Zora fan. I think I want to name my daughter Zora, actually. Uh, Why are you acting like you read those books? It's fine. We're not going to judge you for not actually reading them. It's okay. You know what? At the moment, my favorite is the Malcolm X autobiography. Mm, that's good. LeBron is reading that book, apparently. Now he, I think it was Taylor Rooks who asked him the question. You, clearly, he hasn't read it. And he just doesn't say, "I don't know." I'm just like, bro. Clearly, you haven't read the book. It's fine. You just started it. Cool. Oh the book uh, is so good. Oh yeah, I actually haven't read it either. So I gotta, I gotta. I've been meaning to read that for about a decade. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get on it. I got homework. Um, <laughs> something a little lighter. Favorite TV show, right now and all time. Ooh. Okay. Right. Right now is on my block. Have you seen it? I ain't seen that. It's so good. It's okay. so good. It is so funny. Um, so on my block, and I think all time, like I really like Insecure. I'm watching it for like mm. the fifth time right now. <laughs> okay, okay. And to close this out, um, someone of your expertise, of just your experience, of all the things you bring to the table, advice to black girls who uh, who want to get involved in organizing. Um, my advice to black girls who want to get involved in organizing, um, I would just say, like, never forget that you are worthy mm. or enough the moment you walk in and mm. nothing that you do or say is going to, to, to change that you, you're going to come in. You are worthy. You are already worthy, um, worthy of love, worthy of space, um, mm. worthy of respect and, um, worthy of grace. Yeah. Thanks for holding that space for us. Uh, Shelly, appreciate you. Gang, gang. <laughs>